Well, uh, this is a big get. You know, the book tour, the publicity. She's done Chris Hayes, Pod Save America, and a variety of other shows. Uh, but now she's doing ours. Hillary Clinton joining us in the Trap House Mansion. Madam Secretary, welcome. I feel great. Yes, you, you look great, too. I, I'm feeling great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like I said, I'm, I'm glad you feel good. I'm, well, I'm, it's a great day. <laughs> it's it's kind of hot out. It's a bit muggy in the city. How, how, how you holding I up? will confess that when it's hot out, I like to drink a cold drink. That's a little <laughs> thing about me. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, I mean, how come we didn't see this relatable side of you on the campaign trail? Oftentimes in the morning, I become completely naked and I stand under hot water washing the dirt out of my pores and body at large. Wait, I, like, I, I do that? Most regular Americans I mean, do I, that. I do yeah. it once in a while. Yeah. This is, this is a new side to you. You know, we could just have fun and games all day and talk about these fun things. But I'm here with good news. Of which we need a lot today. Wait a minute. Is there another type of flavor-blasted goldfish that we could look forward to? I have been known to enjoy the flavor-blasted variety, but prefer the original. And at only 150 calories per cup, it is a calorie bargain. (laughs) (laughs) What's, What's this news you have for us? Ladies, start your engines. Women in Saudi Arabia... Can drive. No, yeah, that we, we, we saw that. Uh, so, the, you know, they're considering starting a process which may eventually allow women to drive cars. Like I've always said, women rock. <laughs> and when given the opportunity to show that they rock, they're as good as men. But don't you think this is sort of a uh, cynical attempt by the, the Saudi government to placate, you know, a very, you know, like I'm just Riyadh drifting. <laughs> I may not be Paul Walker, but they're going to edit me out of the movie after I die soon. <laughs> I may not be Tyrese, but I completely ruined the scene by saying something that had nothing to do with anything. It seemed like I was unaware where I was. Nothing I said had anything to do with the events around me, almost as if I was added in post-production. You may even say to the women of Saudi Arabia, all the single ladies, it is still illegal for a woman to be single in Saudi Arabia after the age of eight. Uh, Madam Secretary, um... Uh, so, like, you know, the book's out. It's the talk of the town. What's next? What's next for, for Hillary Clinton? I've been known every once in a while to enjoy a hamburger. <laughs> what are some other things you like? Cold beer. Wow, if you is... drink too many of them, you become intoxicated. <laughs> I know why you cry, but I cannot do it myself. <laughs> Okay, we are back. I'd like to thank again uh, Hillary Clinton for awesome. joining us for that brief Huge interview. Get for us. I wish I could Very have been excited. here for that. Big get for us. But we have another guest on this week's show. Almost as big. Almost as big. If you're a fan of the show, definitely as big or even a bigger guest than Hillary Clinton because the returning champ. Also former Secretary of State. <laughs> back again, <laughs> Derek Davison. Derek, how's it going? Yeah, I, uh, I'm I'm in line to replace Nikki Haley after she replaces Rex Tillerson. <laughs> <laughs> that'll put me that'll put me in in line for Secretary of State by probably uh, this time next year. Well, if only it, I just um, I I pray that we survive that long, Derek. We'll be well, happy that's, to. That's the, yeah, we need uh, yeah, we need yeah. some adults in charge. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we're happy to testify in front of the Senate on your behalf for the confirmation <laughs> process. I can't wait to testify in front of the, the, the full open committee and mm-hmm. say, 
the prejudice against Italian Americans. It's just <laughs> Italian Americans are some of my best friends and the greatest businessmen in this country. Senate subcommittee for the pussy. <laughs> I'm just I'm expecting my my Soros check to to become larger if I do make my way mm. into the administration. Yeah. Because George Soros. Well, we're we're a Mercer family. Yeah, we know yeah, exactly. We get the Mercer money yeah. on this yeah, show. Yeah, it, it's well, all part Mercer, of our. Yeah, I heard about this. Our project to. <laughs> to destroy all Democratic contenders for 2020 Especially Biden. Especially women. Criticizing it when they have meetings with... Robert Mercer... Wall just, Street. Robert Mercer, he, he puts on that chapo and he just goes, pull the strings! Yeah. Pull the strings! <laughs> I call him Robert Merker because if you have gamed with Rob... He is a fucking dead shot, dude. Professor Headshot? Yeah. No, 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 no. You're no, Professor no, Headshot. I'm Professor Headshot, okay. dude. He's more like, you know, adjunct headshot. Mr. No Scope. He's good though. He's okay. fucking good. <laughs> well, uh, Derek, we want to have you on because like I said, we're gonna do a sort of uh uh a trip around the world to various Tour de Horizon. Yes. Uh, to various global hot spots. Uh you're our, you're our official foreign policy correspondent. So we're gonna we're going to talk some foreign policy. We're going to talk some foreign places. And I want to begin with probably the most pressing uh, issue on the global scene right now, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico has been basically completely devastated by a hurricane. The entire island nation are, uh, is without power. Um, they're, you know, it's like the scale of like, it's Hurricane Katrina writ large on a like basically an entire country, and that country also is a protectorate of the United States. So, where do you want to begin with that? I mean, I think the thing we should start about right away is the thing that happened today, where Trump said he was not going to waive the Jones Act to help uh, ease shipments of supplies to Puerto Rico. Can you explain what the Jones Act is and what this means? So, this is um, my familiarity with. Maritime regulations, I admit, is not uh, <laughs> that high. Um, but the Jones Act, uh, as far as I understand it, uh, says that ships that come into American ports have to be American ships. So only American vessels, American you know flagged or owned vessels, are allowed to to travel uh, from you know from uh, are allowed to enter. Uh, American ports. And so what that means is um, Puerto Rico can't get legally is not allowed to receive aid from, let's say, Mexico or other countries in the Caribbean that maybe weren't as hard hit that could send aid. They can't do that because the law says uh, the shipments have to come from an American vessel. And this is some like straight up old school mercantile shit, right? Just yeah, uh, protecting yeah, I mean, American industry at the expense of people's ability to live there. Well, exactly. And Trump, I mean, Trump even said that today. I guess he got asked why he's not going to waive it. And he said something about, well, you know, the people in the shipping industry don't want. Amazing. It's just amazing. And the thing is, it gets lifted. You know, for natural, I mean, it got lifted. It got for, lifted for, for Irma, Irma and Harvey. Um, it got lifted for Harvey in Texas. Like it does, we do uh, suspend this thing uh, fairly regularly in cases of natural disaster. But uh, for some reason, uh, you know, retweet if you know why. Uh, when it when Puerto Rico has been devastated, we we don't take the same steps. God bless him, though, because. We this era we live in, where a president can just say explicitly, "Oh, we're going to let these people die of dehydration because business interests want it." Right. It's pretty amazing. It's a whole new world where all of the propaganda and newspeak that we've grown accustomed to has just fallen away. There's no more need for it. Things move so fast. Nobody's really paying attention. Everybody's got a side. It doesn't fucking matter. Just tell them the truth. Do you remember when um, they caught Jared Kushner's family selling visas in China? Yeah, that not just oh, yeah. feels like it happened, you know, three years ago. It now feels like it never happened. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like well, I hate, a, we, we right. Hate. I mean, yeah, it's not even, uh, you know. I mean, Matt, as you say, I mean, he's been very frank about this, but he's also, uh, you know, Trump has also 
talked you know over and over again about how oh everybody says we're doing such a great job in Puerto Rico <laughs> the the governor says we're doing a great job well the governor's talking about people you know dying of thirst because they can't get water in and it, it, nobody is saying that the United States is doing a great job in Puerto Rico except Trump but that's all that matters because he's you know dutifully got these uh, media outlets that will will say that over and over again to his fans and that's you know but let's not the forget the, the bots debate. that post 15 memes after every one of his tweets of him riding an American eagle while f- firing uh, flames out of his asshole. They're definitely telling him he's doing a great job. Right, exactly. The, uh, the other thing he's been very frank about, um, not just in terms of the uh, shipping interests that he's protecting at the expense of human life, he's also been very frank and very open in a way I think a lot of American presidents haven't been in the past about the fact that the ocean is really big. And Puerto Rico no is just right this. in the middle of it. If you talk about this, you could lose Puerto Rico in the ocean, and no one is brave enough to admit that. I mean, obviously, they're like, okay, so the situation in, in Puerto Rico is extremely dire. Uh, they're completely without power, and it's the thing is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse and worse as the days go on, right? But, like, I think the other huge part of this story that Trump also alluded to when he, you know, stopped talking about the NFL for three seconds this weekend is the fact that Puerto Rico is in this weird state where they're like they're they're already living under a regime that is basically the like it would be like the AEI or like Heritage Action Plan if they could do all that in America like Puerto Rico is like the test case of a regime for like harsh austerity and privatization where like the government, you know, they borrowed all this money because they thought their economy would grow and then it didn't and they're stuck holding the bag with these huge loans from Wall Street and Trump, you know, in his own way sort of made it seem like it was their fault for owing all this money and like, or, or, or it's their fault for owing the money and therefore it's their fault for why like, you know, rescuing them from this disaster is so hard. Um, yeah, I mean, that was his first response basically a week late. The first thing he tweets about Puerto Rico is about their debt. Like, you know, I mean, people are dying. Like, what the fuck are you talking about their but, debt for? But again, like Puerto Rico um, is already existing under this like incredibly harsh policy of like austerity and privatization which I think as we talked to Naomi Naomi Klein uh, just a couple weeks ago uh, is only going to be accelerated now like this is going to be the the, like yeah they're going to use the excuse to privatize their power grid yeah their electricity that's that's the first target yeah it's the power grid well those Um, I mean it's the 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 analog that that um, I would offer is is basically what the EU has been doing to Greece yeah you know, it's it's the same idea. I mean, it's it's you put places in a cycle where um, you know they're 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 in debt. You demand that they implement these you know senseless austerity measures uh, to even get in a conversation about debt relief, um, and then you know the austerity shrinks the economy. So the debt problem gets worse, and then they have to have more austerity, so the economy keeps shrinking. And it, it, it gets into – it puts these places into this cycle that there's just no coming out of. Um, and, and that's the point where um, you, they start, you start talking about selling off assets for a quick infusion of cash so you can you know just make a make a payment and uh you know hopefully meet, you know meet. the hope is that you can you can uh right the ship but but it, it it doesn't work one of the reasons that uh puerto rico was kind of so vulnerable to begin with with this is that the policy that was always pushed on it because it's a colony whether either party admits it or not was that extremely low taxes like in america were meant to fuel growth there so it could be this kind of competitor to cuba in the same part of the world a western competitor to cuba and of course like any sort of small place that is mainly fueled by cheap money and bullshit that only realizes that only exists as like a colonial outpost in one way or the the other it just completely goes to shit but the people picking flesh off the carcass, interestingly enough, are the never-Trumpers. They're all the Mitt Romney donors. Some huge amount of Romney's biggest donors were people who bought Puerto Rican debt, who did the same thing with Argentina, demanding to be made whole even after they would purchase it for like 
60 to even like 40 cents on a dollar. So they could sort of do the same thing you do when you buy debt from a company, sort of debt to equity instruments, where you can just strip it of all its assets and make multiples of what you would if you just had a straight ownership share. And now they're going to be demanding that of a country that's basically had its legs knocked out from underneath it completely. Yeah. I mean, they don't even have electricity right now. Yeah. I and mean, if they want electricity again, they better make it fucking private. Yeah. And I guess like the other interesting thing about that, I mean, interesting or terrifying thing about this we've been talking about is like, you, Derek, you compared it to Greece that's like a similar treatment by the EU in that it's kind of on the periphery of the Eurozone. It's one of these southern european countries they're lazy and you know mediterranean uh puerto rico it's sort of on the periphery of america it's not really a state but it is a u.s protectorate again something i'm almost positive donald trump isn't aware of but at the same time it is like it was the test case for all because of that it's the test case it's like this lab where they can impose all of the policies that they wish they could do on america but matt another thing you pointed out is it's another test case for like how nations and particularly the u.s is going to respond to like future climate disasters yeah, exactly because the, the the hope we all have is oh if things get really bad we're gonna the humanitarian crisis is going to be so overwhelming that it's going to force the hands of power we're going to have to address things because of how much suffering is being caused but and i mean it's hard enough to imagine that happening when the suffering are maybe millions of people being displaced in Bangladesh. But if a million American citizens, quote unquote, you know, the high, on the human totem pole, number one, according to most Americans, the ones who matter, if they can be left to fucking die of starvation and, and thirst for weeks and have it not even be front page news. I mean, the people in New Orleans during Katrina were without... Uh, resources for a few days and the nation was riveted they can't all all the cameras in the world were on the superdome and on those people on those roofs here it's weeks and there's it's basically a peripheral story and that means that as things get worse the lesson being learned is oh we can basically just cut our losses here and you know, it'll be bad for those people but we won't really have to worry about shelling out the money to actually you know, make their lives livable and save save lives and, 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 and stop it from happening in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is a, a good sort of entry-level case for doing this kind of stuff in the United States. Um, not that we haven't. I mean, we've seen, you know, some things, you know, in, in New Orleans. Um, Felix, you'll, you'll know from Chicago that, you know, the city sold off Midway Airport, basically, and the parking concession to, you know, try and uh, get out of a debt crisis. And it was an Olympic um, thing for daily. And Joe. you know, it was disastrous in both cases. Um, but Puerto Rico is a, a good case for them to really push this kind of thing because, of course, uh, only about half of the country knows that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. If you read polling, um, so it's not the the backlash. The risk of backlash isn't as high. Um, you know, as if as if they were doing this to uh, Florida, let's say. I may have misspoken. I said it was a U.S. protectorate. It's an unincorporated U.S. territory. What the I'm fuck? not. Oh, you fucking <laughs> idiot! Oh, you asshole, dude! I'm fuck trying you. to be. You know, I'm trying to provide information here. You know, but anyway. Oh, I think it would be interesting. To back to the Jones Act, I think it would be like an interesting thing for a non-government. Uh, Jacob Bacharach had this idea today, and I think it's an interesting one for like a non-government entity that has the infrastructure and fleet, like let's say Greenpeace, or let's say a, a, another foreign country like Cuba or in the Caribbean, to just send ships to Puerto Rico right now and just basically dare the U.S. Navy or Coast Guard to interdict them. I mean, how bad would that look? Hey, look, I mean, uh, if you look at a uh, policy of a U.S. imperial proxy towards a similar policy, the Gaza flotilla... I think Never ends poorly. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Always good times, man. Well, I mean that that would yeah that would that would certainly lay bare uh, the priorities of uh, U.S. Empire. That's a very V for Vendetta ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean half the people, not half the people, but like if Trump's base saw you know the fucking U S S uh, Gary Glitter or whatever ships <laughs> Trump is named. Just fucking emptying its cannons on a fucking green pea ship with like clean water and everything. 
they would just not even bat an eye. You could tell them that's Al-Qaeda, and they'd be like, half, oh, okay, he got him. I'd say, honestly, half of the country would think it was good, an actively good thing to do, and maybe the other half would disapprove, but half of those people would disapprove the way you disapprove of something when someone calls you up for Gallup to say, what do you think about it? Not anything that would have an impact on anything. They would disapprove of you criticizing those soldiers who put, or those uh, sailors who put Look, their I, lives on the line. <laughs> I, don't, I don't approve of them machine gunning a bunch of humanitarian workers on the open sea, but they are American troops. They are our soldiers and sailors, they're and defending, they deserve respect. They're defending your right to criticize them, so don't criticize them. <laughs> right, and the, and the flotilla probably wouldn't have the proper permits, and, and norms demand that you, you know, you well, this do is things a, in, in the, the appropriate way. I think this is actually a, a good segue to move to the global hotspot number two, which also involves sort of, you know, embargoes or ships being shot at, potentially. Uh, North Korea. Derek. Oh, boy. How... I mean, this is like a, a story we haven't talked about much. I haven't. I've tried to like. I've. I've mostly tried to keep it at arm's length from my consciousness because, like, I don't know. We're friends with both Donald Trump <laughs> and Kim Jong Un. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, I, I, the question I want to ask is like, how frightened should we be of this? Because it seems pretty scary. I'm not scared. You're not scared. Okay, Derek. What do you think? <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm not DMX? afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that DMX who said they're not scared? That's me. Well, Eminem said he wasn't afraid. Him too. Um, I mean, I I don't think we need to be that afraid yet. Thank okay. um, can you. Can you give just like, how did it get to this point where <laughs> Trump is calling Kim Jong-un Rocket Man and Rocket Man is firing back by saying the, the, the senile mad dog Dottard must be tamed with fire? <laughs> <laughs> by the way, by the way, uh, if you have any doubt as to who won that exchange... Oh jeez, I'm sorry, guys. Whoa, what the whoa. fuck, Derek? Uh, we would never do sorry, that. It's the sorry, World War Three phone. Is yeah, the red phone? The red Donald Trump is calling Derek. <laughs> Derek. Derek, are you recording your audacity? Just uh, making Derek, sure, okay? Derek, now one of our rocket men, he did a little something silly. You know, <laughs> you know, he a little a little funny. He got a little, got a little a little funny in the head, and well, was, calm uh, down. Mistakes were made. What what can I say? Trump came into office thinking that. North Korea would be really easy to handle for some reason. He kind of um, thought that about and, everything, and he, didn't he? His his big idea has always been that China will just deal with it. But it's not nearly that simple. I mean, the the Chinese government doesn't you know, it's not in their interest to deal with it in a way that in the way that the United States would want it dealt with for one thing. Um and and also you know, China doesn't have that much leverage. I mean, it has some leverage. It has more leverage with North Korea than probably anybody else. But it doesn't have uh, total leverage or even, you know, a, a preponderance of leverage to, to get Pyongyang to, to do what it wants. And I think what's happened is America has elected the dumbest possible president <laughs> at a time when North Korea's nuclear program and its missile program uh, are were, were ready, at, you know, it's sort of the normal progression of these things. We're ready to make some serious breakthroughs scientifically. Um, and they, you know, they probably pushed on the gas a little bit because Trump's rhetoric has been so, um, you, you know, belligerent, uh, more so than, than previous administrations. Um, but the fact that they're at a point now where they have an ICBM that probably works fairly well, where we now think that they've tested um, a, a, a true two-stage thermonuclear device. Um, you know, those are those are products of you know just the the progression of of both of those programs. You know, North Korea has put a lot of resources and into developing its nuclear capabilities and developing its missile capabilities and you know it so happens that we're at the point of payoff now um just to go back to something you said a little bit uh earlier when you said that like china they don't have a lot of leverage but they have more than most people and even if they did they would like to see this resolved in a way that is 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 different than what how we would like to see it what would china's resolution to this situation that we don't want to see involve. I mean China's concerns with North Korea are that if they push too hard um 
you know, if they if they pushed kind of at maximum levels, you know, North Korea does 80% of its foreign trade with China. So in theory, I mean, China could could put the foot down, put the hammer down and really do a lot of damage to North Korea. But that would mean, you know, there's 25 million people living in North Korea right on China's border who would probably start crossing that border, uh, you know, if they if they were desperate enough. Uh, and if the the situation deteriorated enough, so that's a big concern for them. The other thing, I mean, what China would love to have happen out of the the North Korea, uh, you know, crisis, I guess, or, or situation, the outcome that they would love to see would be for the United States to come to the table with North Korea, with the other parties, and agree to draw down its presence in South Korea in exchange for North Korea, you know, freezing its nuclear program, freezing its missile program. Um, and, and you know, that would mean pulling U.S. radar out of South Korea. And, they, you know, there are systems now that we've put in South Korea that can see into China uh, that they're very uncomfortable with. And just taking that U.S. presence, you know, drawing it down, you know, in, in, a, in a place that's, you know, literally right in China's backyard. Um, and the United States isn't going to do that. Donald Trump, uh, you know, it's not even about Donald Trump. The, 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 the United States, as a matter of principle, is not going to do that. Um, so there's, there, from China's perspective, there's, they would certainly like to see North Korea tamp down its nuclear program. They would certainly like to see stability uh, in that region. Um, but they're not inclined to just do all the heavy lifting for the United States because that doesn't really serve their uh, purposes or their aims. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is North Korea in the American imagination and the way it's presented in the media is – you know, it's 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 we're supposed to be scared by them because they have nukes, but like also it's like they're sort of it's like they're a, a, a funny country because they're weird and their leader's weird and they like they have this fanatical reverence for him and they're like crying looking at his Which picture we would and stuff. Never do in America. Yeah. We, but like, we yeah, don't have millions no, of but, but we have this like I'm sworn to protect Baron Trump. <laughs> but we have this idea about North Korea that they're like this fanatical, dangerous, completely insane country and they have nukes, but like like, what, isn't there this massive amount of context missing about why North Korea would a hate the United States so much and b feel the need to have nukes to protect they themselves? Act like, they act like we killed a third of their population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's yeah, like, Derek, what, they've got some kind of weird grudge against us. Yeah, what's something. missing from this picture here? So, I mean, yeah, obviously the first thing that's missing is the Korean War. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's missing. Well, you mean Mash? I love that show. <laughs> yeah. The fa- the made up war that they had in the show Mash. We struggle to sort of make generalizations or, or you know, uh, and look at analogous situations. But Kim Jong-un, you know, he, he, he didn't, like, hide in a cave when Saddam Hussein got hanged and when Muammar Gaddafi got killed by a mob of people in Libya because the United States, uh, you know, made those things happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi are, are good guys. I'm that saying. Oh, you, but, no, you no will say that no, or we're hanging will, yeah, up right now, Derek. Never coming back. <laughs> Here are two countries that, you know, got on the United States bad side. Their leaders were autocrats just like me, and they didn't develop nuclear weapons, and look what happened. And so, you know, the the calculus is pretty simple. I mean, you know, I want something to deter the United States from coming after me, and that's, that's, the, uh, that's the best thing there is. That's the best weapon there is. It does seem to be like the, the you know— the United States is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons in a war. We have more of them than anyone. And now it, like, it does seem to be this thing where, like, if you really want to be sovereign as a nation, really, then you have to have nukes. And, and the one country that has made a deal, the two countries that have made deals to either not develop nukes or not get rid of them, didn't work out too good. Right. Uh, one, of, one of them got <laughs> invaded by the closest regional power. And the other one, not just not just because of a change in political parties, not because of a change in administration, the same party that did the deal with them passed sanctions on them to prove a bizarre moral point against the president who they unexpectedly lost to. 
like Iran made a deal with us and their reward was that the Democrats were like, all right, Mr. Trump, would you sign these sanctions against Russia and Iran? And he was like, okay. <laughs> that was it. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, this, is, you know, this is... And this that's the other thing, that he's obviously... You know, Kim is obviously going to be watching what happens to Iran and, and, you know, the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, on the brink of tearing that deal up, you know, tells him and everybody else that there's no point negotiating these kind of deals with the United States because, you know, any deal that the U.S. negotiates is only good until the next time we elect some oatmeal brain reality TV clown. <laughs> yeah. The only thing we understand is force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that like, okay, we, we segued into it naturally, um, so now I'm going to awkwardly segue into it again. Okay, Iran, right? Derek, what is the status of the Iran deal that, you know, this was like the center, this was like the big achievement of Obama's second term foreign policy was negotiating with this deal with Iran to halt their, their nuclear weapons program. Right. And so obviously it has to die because it was Obama's. Yeah. By every account, they initiative. have adhered to that agreement. Yet all the same assholes who brought you the Iraq war are saying over and over again that they're cheating. What are these right. people talking about? And like, what, what's the little like, What's their in here? Like, what's the fig leaf that they can use to be like, they're not playing fair, so we're going to try to get a better deal now, like a th six months after the original one? Right. So they're, uh, th they've tried very hard to push the idea that Iran is cheating. And this is based on a couple of minor, uh, I, I mean, you can call them violations, uh, where Iran has temporarily manufactured more um, heavy water for, for a, you know, which is used in a type of reactor that produces plutonium. And for um, cooking they've Yola. manufactured more of that than they're allowed to have under the terms of the deal, or where they've briefly held, you know, a, a slightly higher um, stockpile of enriched uranium than they're allowed to have under the terms of the deal. And every time something like this has happened, it's been taken care of uh, very quickly through the mechanisms that are specified under the deal. I mean, so these are not events that nobody foresaw happening. I mean, they're they're in you know there are mechanisms in the deal to take care of them. Um, but you know they've tried again and again to point to these incidents and say, well, see, they're cheating and they're going to continue to try and push the envelope and, and cheat more and, they're, they're, you know, eventually we're going to have nuclear Armageddon or, you know, a nuclear-armed Iran. Um, that's kind of failed because, you know, literally nobody else on the planet is buying it except this, you know, crowd of Iraq war dead-enders. And Emmanuel Macron. Um, you know, the the... The EU, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Germany, France, the UK, Russia, all the other parties to the deal, none of them will go along with, with the idea that Iran is in you know, constant violation of the deal or that they've been cheating. They all say that the Iranians have, have stayed in compliance. And so now the, the people in, in the US who are you know, both within the Trump administration and outside of it who are trying to kill the deal have started talking about Iran being in technical compliance, and you can put quotes around that. Okay. Um, and so what they mean by that is that the Iranians, yes, they're complying with the strict wording of the deal, with the letter of the law, but they're violating the spirit of the deal. Oh. And the spirit of the deal is, of course, something that they just kind of make up for whatever purpose they need to, they needed to be, but they mean you know they're they're still supporting Hezbollah, they're supporting Hamas, they're still making ballistic missiles, they're supporting Assad, um, you know they're still providing some level of support to the Houthis in in Yemen. Um, that's always exaggerated, but but there is some, um, and, and so they they argue that these things are. You know, violations of the spirit of the nuclear deal, which is bullshit. There was no spirit of the nuclear deal. And everybody, including the deal's opponents, 
didn't want there to be a spirit of the nuclear deal. The, these are the same people who, when it was being negotiated, would have like shit diamonds if Obama had come along and said, well, why don't instead of just talking about the nuclear program, why don't we do a grand deal with Iran about all their bad behavior? These people would have gone fucking apoplectic at that. But now that it serves their interests, they're talking about, well, you know, this deal just well, they, covers the nuclear program. It doesn't cover any of these other things. They want a better deal, and they think that Trump can negotiate one if well, he, by getting rid of by, by getting rid well, of the. Well, how, Derek, you don't believe in president, president deals. deals the actual meaning of spirit of the deal is that, despite you know, looking Barack Obama in the eye, shaking his hands, making a deal with America and the P five nations, Iran. Unfairly is still a regional power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, exactly yeah. Right. yeah. I, I honestly, I can't wait for President Deals to get in that room with the Iranians and make an awesome deal. And then at the end of it, Hezbollah has taken over all of Israel in exchange for building a casino in Qom. <laughs> that's a dude, that's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. We're talking about you know whether they're technically in compliance, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. The only thing I have to say on that is. Eli Lake technically looks nothing like Ellie Valley's cartoon caricature of him. But he's in the spirit of <laughs> but it. But in spirit, yeah. it is identical in every right. respect. So transitioning from a theocratic state that extends its influence far beyond its borders, well, can, uh, oppresses can, women. Can, can, can I say one more thing about oh, yeah, yeah, Iran? Because yeah. I know where you're going with this. But um, <laughs> so what, the, what they want Trump to do is there, there's a bill, uh, there's a law called the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act that was passed in 2015 after the deal was signed by Congress. And it requires the president to come, come around every 90 days uh, and certify that Iran is in compliance with the deal and that the deal is still uh, in America's national interest. And what they want Trump to do, the next time it comes, comes up is October 15th, and what they want Trump to do is decertify the agreement. Um, they were they were gunning for him to decertify it on the grounds that Iran is out of compliance, but now they're talking about decertifying it because it's not in America's national interest. And what happens then is it throws the issue to Congress, and Congress has the option of reimposing sanctions, um, all the you know all the nuclear sanctions, and that you know that's it. That's the end of the the deal. I, Europe and Russia and China will try to maintain. Um, you know their relationships with Iran, but there are sanctions that the U.S. imposes that will lock countries out of, you know, the 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 international finance system. They're very powerful sanctions, so it's going to be very hard if Congress does impose reimpose sanctions. It's going to be very hard uh, to come back from that. Now, there, it's not guaranteed that they would do that. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that the Trump administration doesn't want them to do that yet. What they want is the threat of them doing that so that they can then go back to the Iranians and demand to reopen the deal. But, you know, the, the Iranians aren't inclined to do that. And I don't think anybody else is either. Can so we fix we'll all see. this by just smuggling a few American ICBMs to Iran just so that they can have a fucking nuclear <laughs> Sorry, weapon. Oh, dude, Chapo Road Trip. <laughs> Seriously, we would win the Nobel fucking Peace Prize if we could somehow just instantly announce to the world, we've armed Iran, they've got nukes, shut the fuck up, you're not invading. <laughs> oh my god, dude, the movie Euro Trip, but it's Iran Trip. Me, I finally have sex. Uh, Matt pursues his long-lost Persian pen pal. Will discovers Iranian cinema. Brendan produces Iranian pop. This dude, this is gonna be. Yeah, I already have discovered trip, Iranian dude. cinema. That Taste of Cherry movie was boring. Uh, I was talking more about the Iranian bodybuilder who Michael Hudson posts on Twitter. Oh, that guy is yeah, dope. That, 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 guy's well, that, wait, that guy. Wait, that guy. That guy's uh, Iranian. Yeah, that's actually the guy who. Negotiated the <laughs> nuclear deal. <laughs> have you have you guys seen? I, I, this was a long time ago, but I, I used to tweet this picture all the time. It, it's this photo that was taken at an Iranian bodybuilding competition, and the backdrop is Qasem Soleimani, yeah, yeah. former bodybuilder. Former He's like looking at the bodybuilders. <laughs> it's the funniest. Fucking yeah, it's one of these giant dudes, these synthol giant dudes, and Soleimani is back in the back, smiling approvingly at them. <laughs> Soleimani was a bodybuilder before he went into the military. All right, Philly, uh, let's let's move down to your your preamble about a, a dangerous theocratic power whose influence right, extends okay. beyond his borders. But seriously, we're done talking about this awful theocratic power that interferes in the affairs of other nations that 
brutally institutes the death penalty, oppresses women, um, and just has very a very murky pattern of behavior. Now, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> the good country in the Middle East. Yeah. The good regional power. Yeah. The gallant Turan's goofus. <laughs> <laughs> Derek wrote a great article today about Prince Gallant himself. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Derek, what's going on? What's going on with the, the prince? Well, Machiavelli so Nietzsche. <laughs> he's, he's not going to be the prince. I don't think he's going to be the prince very much longer. Um, you know, there have been rumors since he, um, you know, knocked off his uh, cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, and, and got bumped up to first, you know, crown prince next, there's, you know, first in line for the throne, that his dad was going to abdicate. Um, and there, those rumors have been kind of growing, I think, in intensity of late. And I wouldn't be surprised. It probably wouldn't happen until next year at the earliest. But I wouldn't be surprised if that happens um, relatively soon. And part of the reason, I think, uh, you know, what my piece, my piece is basically cataloging Mohammed bin Salman's uh, classic fuck-ups since you know, his rise into the, the ranks of the royal elite. And so I, I think that part of the reason Salman, King Salman, might uh, want to abdicate sooner than later is so that his son can succeed him before this the, the list of fuck-ups starts to catch up to him and really, you know, causes problems within the royal family. I want to run through, like, a quick rundown of fuck-ups for people, but... Um we have talked a little bit about Yemen before, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit. Uh, there are so Saleh, the old president of Yemen, who's been allied with the Houthis after being something like a quintuple sextuple agent who's switched sides more times than anyone in history. The people are people have said that one of his bodyguards was killed by a Houthi and that there may be some holes in the rebel coalition, but that this may also be Saudi Arabia's like only way out would the, be for them to make a deal with Saleh and that they didn't, this was not their plan when they went in. No, it definitely wasn't their plan when they went in, but you know, I mean, from we've learned from the Yusuf Alotaiba, who's the UAE ambassador to the U S from his email leaked emails that uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman wants out of Yemen badly. I mean, he he sort of recognizes that he's led the Saudis into a quagmire, and I think uh, you know, <laughs> cutting cutting a deal with Saleh is one of those things. It's like that's just crazy enough to work. Um, it, it probably wouldn't because I don't I don't know that Saleh is in a position to cut a deal. I, I think that if there was even a hint of that the houthis would you know toss his ass in a jail cell um and and wouldn't think twice about it but but there is a problem i mean there is a a big problem for them for the saudis now in terms of you know what's the exit strategy like what's the what's the way to get out of this the war is stalemated uh, all it's doing now is you know sort of giving people cholera and starving them to death um nobody's making any progress and the the you know there's there's tension in the houthi saleh relationship but there's also a lot of tension um on the other side between you know forces that are still loyal to uh president hadi uh, uh the the quote-unquote legitimate president and uh you know a lot there's there's a whole movement of southern um, tribes and other prominent figures that that want to secede, that have wanted to secede uh, for you know a couple of decades now, um, and you, you know we we hear you hear you know every couple of weeks about fighting in Aden in the city of Aden between those forces that are nominally aligned uh, to fight the 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 Houthis and the this uh, you know the Houthi Saleh rebel group, um, but they're fighting amongst each other. And not to mention the cracks in the coalition itself since the war started, where now one of the primary members of Saudi Arabia's coalition to just bomb and blockade Yemen is not now has 
a naval blockade against them by Saudi Arabia. The well, GCC right. itself I mean, you know, is completely falling were, apart. Were part of the coalition and had actually had soldiers sent home from Yemen uh, when when the blockade started. What? Wait, sorry. Which country is this? Qatar. Oh, okay. Um, can we can we move now to the uh, the Vox piece, which I think ties everything all this together? Let's do it. Okay, Derek. Yeah, I want to close out. Uh, sort of uh, analyzing with you and sort of a, uh, a classic Chapo reading series. Now, this is a, this is a piece that I noticed that came out in, in Vox uh, the other week about this foreign policy address that uh, Bernie Sanders gave um, at, uh, I think, at Westminster College. And I wanted to bring this up with you because I remember back on uh, your first um, episode with us, we talked about um, the foreign policy blob in the United States and this kind of, this permanent, I like, class of people with, with this ideology and agenda that is sort of protean but like unchanging. It's still always the blob. And I thought this, this article was a good example of how the blob has sort of adapted to changing circumstances since then, but is still essentially the blob um, in that it cannot really be negotiated or reasoned with. And uh, this is a piece in Vox by uh, Jessica Williams. The headline uh, is, uh, Bernie Sanders wants world peace and prosperity, but he has no idea how to get there. Uh, His big foreign policy speech shows the limits of his idealism. Uh, First of all, Derek, did you see the Bernie Sanders speech or did you read it? Uh, Do you have any thoughts on it? I didn't see it. I've read it. Um, You know, my thoughts are that... (laughs) Like, I mean, I don't know if we're supposed to, like, seriously hold this guy up for criticism because he doesn't have a plan for world peace. <laughs> well, that is what the article does, and we're going to get into yeah. it. Um, you know, so, yeah, rake him. I mean, drag him. Fuck. You know, if you don't have a plan for world peace, Kill what are you doing? Well, the thing is, is, there's a rule. If you are endorsing status quo ideas that are insanely idiotic and totally, uh, totally... Uh, amorphous and without specifics, it's cool as long as they are conventional. If you say, we're going to go and spread democracy with American might, that you, no one asks, how are you going to do it specifically? Or we're going to fix Afghanistan. Nobody asks, how are you going to do it specifically? It's only if you challenge the prevailing model that all of a sudden politicians whose real job is not to do fucking wonk shit, but to sketch out broad agendas and alternatives all of a sudden, they need granular specifics. Yeah, uh, we see like the, the similar dynamic, like for instance, in healthcare. Exactly. Like sure. where you say, like you know, Medicare for all. Like, who's gonna pay for it? That's thirty-two trillion dollars, and it's just like none of these people would ask ever ask that about like the Pentagon do, do, or like the Iraq do you War or anything. When John Podesta well, right. tweeted, I mean, "We increased the defense budget yeah. to seven hundred billion dollars a year." Or the, the NDAA did. I mean, Congress hasn't, the appropriations haven't come in yet, but they want to. And, you know, they passed the NDAA, which does this, which appro- you know, which, which designates this. And, and nobody says, well, how are you going to afford that? I mean, that's a, you know, substantial increase in military funding. But because it's military funding, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's normal. Not even military funding, but just actual plans of action like do you remember when john podesta tweeted hillary's plan to destroy isis it was like one defeat isis militarily two no more isis three isis no not anymore yeah i mean i i I thought i think it's a fine speech it's not granular as as matt said and uh, you know this is this is not you know i mean i've written about uh, i wrote about bernie's foreign policy um you know, during the primary. And, uh, you know, I, there are criticisms to be made that, you know, he's still learning. He's still kind of getting himself up to speed on foreign policy. It, yeah. It's never been his his area. It's not something he's spent a lot of time thinking about. And he does default on a lot of things to stuff that sounds pretty conventional, you know, while, while you know, talking about how we need to change. I mean, he does talk about talk about you know things that when he gets to down to the detail level that don't sound all that different from uh you know what obama did or you know what uh you could define in the sort of left progressive end of uh conventional wisdom that's true Um, but what's interesting i want to get into the the, what jessica williams writes about it because i think what's interesting is is the reaction to it or the way in which the board the the blob is trying to sort of metabolize what you describe as like a fairly conventional 
progressive or liberal foreign policy vision that's being given voice now by Bernie Sanders, who is the most visible and popular, like left of center politician in America at the moment. Right. And I but I mean, I think at the at the level of sort of broad ideas, um, he does have some some different things to say than what the you know, the standard foreign policy um, view in the United States is. And he, he hasn't fleshed those out into at the at the granular policy level, but the ideas are important and it's important for people to hear them from somebody. Because we don't generally hear things like maybe we shouldn't be bombing eight fucking countries at once. Now I'm not going to read all of this, but I've, I've highlighted certain parts here. And so Jessica Williams, like, it begins here. She says, uh, "Bernie." You offered a moving portrait of the world as it should be. What he didn't offer, though, was any sort of new or innovative or even particularly concrete ideas for how to achieve this grand utopian vision. Of course, big political speeches like this often present the world as it should be and don't get bogged down in the details. But especially when it comes to foreign policy, these details really do matter. And then like the next like big Vox like subhead is Sanders rightly called out America's many foreign policy sins for which he describes, you know, the overthrow of the democratically elected leader of Iran in 1953, murderous regime, uh, re- you know, support for regimes in El Salvador, Guatemala, Chile and elsewhere up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. He Jessica says he slammed the Obama and now Trump administration's support for Saudi Arabia's horrific, brutal war in Yemen, which has killed more than 10,000 civilians since its start in 2015 and triggered one of the most devastating humanitarian catastrophes the world has seen. So she's like, okay, she like this is sort of like showing you the cards up front, but like he's right about all of these terrible things that we've done in the past in our foreign policy, including the war in Iraq. Jessica Williams, by the way, was a fellow at the Brookings Institute. So that's another little tell there for what's coming later. And she says, taking a stand against things like torture and supporting regimes that, regimes that wantonly slaughter innocent civilians is laudable, and Sanders should be given credit for doing so. Criticizing Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement and urging him not to abandon the Iran nuclear deal is sensible policy. But while condemning American imperialism and Trump's recklessness might play well with Sanders' liberal base of support, those things alone do not add up to a comprehensive foreign policy that addresses the myriad international crises and challenges that face the United States today. And what I like about this is, like, does any of the alternatives add up to a coherent, coherent, comprehensive foreign policy? It certainly doesn't seem like it. Nobody has a comprehensive foreign policy that talks about every threat that America faces or every potential crisis. Nobody has one of those. Um, and the, the fact is that, you know, you're running through this, this list of uh, things that she sort of dismisses as not concrete policy. But don't enable Saudi war crimes in Yemen is a concrete policy that you could implement right now. Don't pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement is a concrete policy that you could implement right now. Don't abandon the Iran nuclear deal is a concrete policy that you could implement right now. But because those things are all like, don't do something. Exactly. They don't register in the do something centric we got to do something and and the next big subhead here is condemning things is good providing alternative solutions is better she writes here's an example where sanders foreign policy vision breaks down he describes terrorism as a very real threat but then he goes on she goes yet he decries both full-scale u.s military intervention and the use of drone strikes and other airstrikes to kill terrorists around the world (laughs) That's all well and good, but then how does he plan to adjust the threat both to the U.S. directly and to the security, stability, and prosperity of people around the world from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda? If not, sorry, I'm starting to sound like Decker. <laughs> groups like Bruce, the Taliban. Taliban. <laughs> oh, and we have President Davison. Yeah. If, yeah, President Davison. Holy shit. You're right. We're talking President <laughs> Davison, what is Bernie Sanders going to do about threats facing America? How are we going to c- confront groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda if not by some combination of military intervention or drone and airstrikes. Does he have an alternative idea of how to approach the threat from international terrorist groups beyond the vague notion that if everybody is happy and prosperous, terrorism will automatically disappear? If he does, he failed to share it with the rest of us during his speech. And then, he, here, Derek, there's another good one we, we just talked about. He says, she says, similarly, 
While Sanders sang the praises of the Iran nuclear deal and encouraged Trump not to pull the U.S. out of it, here's the real tell. He never mentions the very real concerns the Trump administration and many of the deal's supporters and detractors have raised about Iran's other dangerous and destabilizing actions, such as its support for terrorist groups and sectarian militias throughout the Middle East. It's atrocious human rights record at home, and it's continued testing of ballistic missiles. Hold on, I just walked into the uh, human-sized Kerrig that the Saudis donated to Brookings. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this, this to me, that line about Iran and its behavior is the ultimate tell for like the foreign policy blob mindset. The idea that anyone who could have come out of Brookings and Vox is going to come is going to say Iran has de it's destabilizing actions in the Middle East. Where the fuck do these people get the balls big enough to, to, like, to criticize Ar anyone else for destabilizing the Middle East or abusing human rights like, in it? Fuck Ar if, fuck Iraq, fuck Libya. What about the how According to these people, when you ask them about the Syrian rebel program, they go, well, it was a very small amount of money, you know, one to three billion dollars a year just going to whoever we moderate don't know. Moderate rebel what, groups yeah, in Syria. Or, yeah. or, or just or anything that Saudi Arabia does or anything that Qatar, that Qatar has done where, you know, them and Saudi Arabia accurately accuse each other of doing the same shit. Just the destabilization thing is so perfect for these people because... It's such an antiseptic word that is so removed from any ideology that it turns around. I mean, we talked about how that characterized North Korea. They with North Korea, it's always this very like 1920s vision of racism that the every every person in North Korea is just like an evil, vicious child who <laughs> likes pointing their guns at us. And there's not some real thing going on there. And with Iran, they're snidely whiplash. They just love making chaos. <laughs> Yeah, they're yeah. agents of chaos in the Middle East. They're Again, the Joker. Yeah. And then she goes on to write here, while he rightly slams the U.S. for supporting Saudi Arabia in its disastrous war in Yemen, he fails to acknowledge that the Obama administration gave that support in the first place in order to convince Saudi fuck Arabia you. to support the fuck, Iran nuclear deal fuck yourself, and to do more dumbass. to help fight ISIS in Syria. Well, I mean, right, that, that's why Saudi Arabia hasn't been lobbying our government with God knows how many quote-unquote pizzas to <laughs> fucking scrap the deal since. It really worked, didn't it? Also, it's really, I mean... It's a strong point. Have you tried not bombing everybody in response to terrorism? I mean, that's just silly because we know that bombing them works. <laughs> yeah, like, there's that, terrorism. I mean, that's the thing that really. this whole passage just kind of boggles the mind. Like, how are you going to address the threat of terrorism unless you do all these things that we already have shown don't really <laughs> do anything about the threat of terrorism? <laughs> yeah. Like, how are you going to address the problem of Iran's destabilizing actions without continuing the 40-year-long policy that hasn't done anything to change Iran in any way, but, you know, has has only made made that situation worse by isolating them? We, we have to use these effective policies like droning uh, occupation, huge just military bases permanently in the region, isolating Iran, full-throated support for everything Israel does, because we've done them all the way. We've done them when, you know, during the Iranian revolution, we did it when Al-Qaeda started. We've done it now that ISIS has started. We did it when ISIS took over most of Iraq and Syria. We're doing it uh, eventually when we get ISIS too. We're doing it when we get Al-Qaeda <laughs> too. Uh, we, we've, it's tried and true. Like well, it's followed us. Uh, we've, it's helped us through all these strategies. Well, Phyllis, like, I, think, I think this these strategic uh, tactical mindset this Scenarios. This is the blob mindset, though, because she describes all of these terrible things that the U.S. has done in their foreign policy up, like you know, like up until like last week, right? Yeah, and like all carried out by people exactly like Jessica Williams. I mean, not I don't mean to be her specifically, no, but people, people at Brookings and people related, I'm sure people that she's friends with have done all this stuff and created this fucking nightmare. And then like when people criticize these actions and be like, hey, we shouldn't have done that, 
these people now demand from these people solutions to all of the nightmare problems uh, that they've created. Do you have a better way to create ISIS? Yeah, I thought not. <laughs> but uh, Derek, to close it out, I just like the she she ends by saying. All this is not to say that Sanders is wrong to criticize the immorality, hypocrisy, and failures of current and past U.S. foreign policy. That's the blob just sort of like adapting and filling a new crevice, you know, reaching out its tendrils in a new, a new way. Uh, she goes, it's merely to say that foreign policy is never as simple or as black and white as it seems from the outside. As Republicans are learning the hard way now with their efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare, it's one thing to stand on the outside and rail against the policy decisions made by those in power. It's another thing entirely to come up with actual workable policies that account for all the messy complexities of the real world. By messy complexities here, she means the drone strikes that kill innocent yeah. people. And, <laughs> Empire man. <management. laughs> yeah. And he goes, exactly. I do, and she... And, and it's also meant to, to set up Bernie as sort of like analogous to the Republicans and they're trying to, they, they just want to tear things down like Obamacare, but they don't want to build up, you right. know? Right, and, and, and the, you know, to, to dismiss him as, as a, you know, utopian idealist who, you know, she says idealism and, and utopian visions. Um, on, the, on the basis of one speech... You know, from a from a guy who's, you know, a senator. I mean, he's not president of the United States. Um, and it's... It, 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 I, I feel like there's there's a, a, a mindset in um, this sort of... Within the, the sort of foreign policy consensus um, that it, it does this on every issue. Basically, it says, yeah, sure, everybody wants, like us not to kill people but it's hard it's <laughs> complex it's complicated and you know the the fact is like the the discourse that we have in this country about foreign policy and military intervention is so skewed toward you know we have to do something we have to bomb these people we have to invade here we have to do it's so skewed toward militarism and and um, applying force and pressure to the to other countries that people really don't hear these messages it's you can't dismiss the idealism as though it's not needed or it's not enough it's important because there's no there's no consistent countervailing message that the American people hear on f issues of foreign policy apart from the the you know the the, the consensus and the, the you know this the obsession that we have with with militarism so you know I, I get it he, he's not drilling down to the basic nitty-gritty policy level but it's still a message that's important. It's still a message that should be out there in the, you know, in the debate. Well, here's the thing, though, and this is why this discourse is so incredibly frustrating to me, to see people criticizing Bernie's foreign policy vision, and it's always in this wonk key of, well, he doesn't know the facts enough. He's not well-versed enough because that's all these idiots care about is what statistics you can rail off because they're all a bunch of grade-grubbing fucking nerds. But there is a fundamental, I think, or I guess I want to run this by you because I've been thinking about it a lot, uh, there's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of Bernie Sanders' foreign policy vision, and there's a reason that he's, I mean, there's one thing to say, oh, he doesn't really know foreign policy, it's not his strong suit, all true, but I think part of the reason that he hasn't thought too hard about foreign policy is because, I don't know, it feels like there might be a fundamental contradiction between his domestic vision and what he sort of, the left ideas on foreign policy, because his pitch to the American people is basically, we are the richest country in the history of the world, we have, can afford to give people health care and education and all that. But are we the richest country in the world that can afford to give this largesse to everybody without being a world-bestriding military colossus? Aren't those things connected in a way that to undermine empire in a meaningful way would also undermine the this... this uh, massive wealth that allows that would allow america to create social democracy well I, yeah i mean i i think there's a, a a good case to be made or good argument to be made on that front and and where you know one place i think you can criticize um even even a, you know a, a progressive figure like bernie sanders 
for not going deeper is we don't talk about, you know, America reaps a lot of economic benefit from being, you know, the, uh, the global superpower. But we also expend a lot of resources and a lot of money and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, blood, really, to maintain that status. And so I think that, that you're right. There would definitely be uh, economic impacts to the United States, you know, kind of uh, withdrawing from, from a role, not from the world, not, not, you know, in terms of isolationism, but kind of pulling back from this uh, global hegemonic role. But there would also be resources freed up by that, that, you know, we put into maintaining ourselves that that we put into maintaining you know what is it 13 aircraft carriers when nobody else has more than like one or two yeah that's right you know that we put into building the f-35 which doesn't work and it's not clear why you needed it in the first place you know that that we put into um you know maintaining uh, bases all across the world, and you know, to to uh, kind of force ourselves into you know to you kind of put ourselves in everybody's face and make ourselves omnipresent. Uh, those things all cost a lot of money, and and if if it's just a bottom line calculation, there are um, you know there are trade offs in either direction. I mean, I guess just to, to close thing out. I mean, for me, it just comes back again to what you said about how like the default setting is always that we have to do something. And how about this? Here's my coherent foreign policy vision. Do nothing. And I would even extend that to like, here's a thought experiment. Uh, go back to 9-11. If 9-11 happened and our foreign policy response to that was literally just, we're going to rebuild the Twin Towers and then literally nothing else, think how much safer, wealthier, and like just not just wait, this country, wait, wait, but like down. most of the world. Slow down. No podcast then. <laughs> Are you prepared to make it? Yeah, we're in Iraq. It was worth it. <laughs> worth it. Uh, thank you for your sacrifices, everyone. Yeah, Derek, thank you for your President Davison. Thank yeah. you for your service <laughs> once again coming on the I'm show. Happy, happy to happy to contribute what I can. I'm standing up, by the way. And I'm going to play the <laughs> be. Yeah, you better be standing, Derek. A pleasure as always. Thank you, Derek. Until next time, Thanks, everybody. Guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.